Have you ever noticed how some of the most difficult trials that we go through are often experienced right after a spiritual high point or, or maybe a time that you would describe as a mountaintop experience? You ever noticed that? You, you've lived it, right? I've seen it in my own life, and I know I've seen it in, in, in the lives of of others. Maybe, maybe the trial comes right after you return from a retreat, you know, a spiritual retreat. Maybe it's a youth group retreat or a, a men's retreat, a women's retreat, right? And, and while you're there, you just, you're growing closer to the Lord and you, you're making commitments that you just want to walk closer with Jesus. And then you come home from the retreat, spiritual high, and then boom, the trial comes, right? Hits you. Or maybe it was right after your baptism, right after, right after you stepped into the waters and you publicly proclaimed for all to see that you are a follower of Jesus and that you want to follow him for the rest of your life. And then you get up out of the waters, you get in the car, and boom, the trials come. Anybody experienced that? I've seen it many, many times after people return from a mission trip right? You go on a mission trip and God opens your eyes and he helps you to see the world and he helps you to see the church in a different way. And you come home from that trip and you're just, you're like on cloud nine. You just can't wait to get involved and take everything you learned and apply it and and help reach the world for Christ. You're so excited. And then boom, the trial comes. Well, last week, we read uh, about a day in the life of Jesus that would certainly be on the highlight reel of his life. It was the day of Jesus' baptism. And you'll remember from last week that as Jesus was coming up out of the water, as he's coming up out of the water, he was praying, and and Luke tells us that three miraculous things took place. The, The skies, the heavens were peeled back. The Holy Spirit descended and came to rest on Jesus, and then the audible voice of God spoke from heaven and said, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. I mean, that, can you imagine? What an incredible day. What an incredible moment in the life of Jesus. But that story is quickly followed by the story that we're gonna be reading today. The story of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus is going to spend 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. You know, like the experience of so many of us, a high point in Jesus's life is immediately followed by a time of intense hardship. In the book of Hebrews, we looked at this verse last week, but we'll look at it again. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we're told that we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, three really important words here, yet without sin. One of the things that makes this story that we're about to read so special is that it, 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 it invites us and it shows us that we have a Savior who understands what we go through. He understands He faced temptation. But more than that, he overcame temptation, right? Jesus did what every single one of us has failed to do. 
We've all given in to temptation, haven't we? But Jesus didn't. Now, one of the things that I need to stress before we begin the story is, because here's what I know. I know when we look at this story, in our minds, we automatically go to, yeah, but he was Jesus, right? I mean, he's the son of God, so it's not fair. It's not fair. But, but what Hebrews tells us is that Jesus, he, he, he experienced our temptations. He experienced this fully. He understands, what our, he can sympathize with our weaknesses, Jesus, according to the scriptures, is both fully God and he is fully man, fully God, fully man. And as the son of God, as the son of God, he could have snapped his fingers and he could have miraculously ended his suffering in the wilderness. Just like that, boom, done. He could have snapped his fingers and he could have sent Satan packing, right? Get out of here, go away, and he would be gone. Right? He could have done that. But what's so great about this story is we see that Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't utilize his divinity in order to get out of the difficulty. Jesus embraced this trial with all the limitations of humanity. And why is that so important? Why is that such a big deal? Because it shows us that there is a way to overcome temptation without having to have divine powers to snap your fingers and send Satan packing. He uses the tools that are available to every single one of us. That's pretty cool. And so this, this passage is really, really important. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. We read this, in Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Now, according to Mark's gospel, it was immediately after his baptism. Mark includes that word, immediately. And Mark actually says he was driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit in order to be tempted for 40 days by Satan. Let's talk about the wilderness for a moment. Because I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but you know, here in Maine, if I say I'm going out into the wilderness, immediately we get a picture in our minds, right? The picture in our minds, because we're Mainers, is a dense forest you know, filled with trees and streams and maybe lakes and rivers and lots of critters and you know, the brooks are filled with brook trout. It's just, it's gorgeous, right? The wilderness is, is beautiful here. But that picture in our minds is literally nothing like the wilderness where Jesus was led. The Judean wilderness, you look at this here, a uh, quick little 20-second glimpse of the Judean wilderness. Th- this is, look at it, isn't that foreboding? Isn't that awful? I mean, it's kind of beautiful in its own way, too, but it, yes, is it not a, a, an accurate description of a dry and weary land? Wow. The Judean wilderness is a hot, it is a dry, and it is a rugged desert. Located just 15 to 20 miles east of Jerusalem, <laughs> the temperatures in this Wilderness area can easily be 20 to 30 degrees warmer 
than the temperatures just up in the hills in Jerusalem. Think about that. Over a 15 to 20 mile span, the temperature can rise 20 to 30 degrees. Isn't that crazy? That's like from Jay to Fayette. 20 to 30 degrees warmer. The Judean desert is situated uh, right between the Dead Sea to the east, which is at an altitude of, get this, 1,400 feet below sea level. It's the lowest place on earth. And then the Judean hill country to the west, which rises to 2,500 plus feet above sea level. So you got a 4,000 foot swing in elevation, right? From the, from the hill country of Judea down to the, to the Dead Sea. And right between that area is the Judean wilderness. And because of its location, the, Jude, the Judean wilderness gets little to no rain every year. Hardly ever rains there. Because what happens is as the storms come off the Mediterranean Sea, what do they run into? The hill country of Judea. And the rain clouds barely ever make it over the hill country into the wilderness. This is a hot, dry, and barren land. And this is the area where Jesus, according to verse 2, is going to spend 40 days being tempted by the devil. Does not sound like a picnic, does it? Not at all. Think about that for a second. 40 days, that's like six weeks, right? Nearly six weeks, Jesus is going to be the primary target and focus of Satan. And as if this trial wasn't already difficult, Jesus is going to face this trial while he is fasting from food. <laughs> Can you think about that? I hate fasting. Like my favorite part of every day is break fast, right? <laughs> Verse two says that he ate nothing during those days. 40 days without food. And for any of you who have fasted, you know that that is a really, really long time. I have, I have, difficulty, I have difficulty fasting between dinner and breakfast. Like seriously, it is difficult for me to make the trek upstairs to my bedroom without stopping at the fridge first, you know? I just need a quick snack before I go to sleep, you know? In recent years, the practice of fasting has become really popular for some of, the, some of the health benefits. In fact, it's a intermittent fasting. Don't you just want to slap people when they talk about that stuff? Like, are you practicing intermittent fasting? Stop pretending you're better than me, okay? <laughs> right? Intermittent fasting. It's, it's become a, a really popular thing. But in the scriptures, the, the, the health benefits weren't really the concern for fasting, right? In the scriptures, the practice of fasting was focused on the spiritual benefits. You know, fasting, whether it was food or some other physical or material thing, is meant to be a way of denying our flesh in order to focus on our spirit. It's a practice that is intended to increase both our awareness of God and our dependence on God. So as a spiritual discipline, people will often enter into periods of fasting, and you'll often see it coupled with fasting and prayer, fasting and prayer. You know, whether the fast is for one meal per day or an entire day, 
or seven days or even multiple weeks. The idea is that as you are fasting from food, you are assigning a greater attention and focus to your relationship with God and your dependence upon him. So Jesus is in the wilderness. He's being tempted by Satan and he's fasting for 40, 40, 40 days. That is just so crazy long, isn't it? In the scriptures, there's only two other people who, are fast, who, are, who are, were told fasted for a period of 40 days, Moses and Elijah. 40 days is an incredibly long time to fast. And before I, before I go any further and talk about the rest of this story, I have to stop and issue a word of caution. Because I know that there's some eager person here right now saying, well, psh, sounds awesome. I'll do it. Moses did it. Elijah did it. Jesus did it. Might as well be me too. I'm just going to go home today and I'm not going to eat lunch and I'm going to start my 40-day fast beginning right now. Before you decide to do that, <laughs> seriously, just try starting with one meal. Right, really, for me, anyway, that's it. Like, if I could just make it through one meal without food, that would be a victory, you know? And then if, now listen to this, if the Lord leads you to fast longer, a day, go for a day. And as you're fasting, as you're fasting and you're abstaining from that food, every time your stomach rumbles because you're hungry, allow that to remind you of your your relationship with God and your dependence upon Him. You know, before you decide to do a lengthy fast, there's something really, really important that, that, that I need to make sure that you understand. And that is that Jesus, Jesus was led into this fast by the Holy Spirit. And if you're gonna enter into a fast, especially, especially a long fast like that, you need to be led by the Holy Spirit. Don't, don't let the length of the fast become your focus, okay? It's not about the length, it's about the Lord. Let the Lord be the focus of your fast and let him dictate and let him lead you in how long that fast is supposed to last for you. Because apart from the leading of the Holy Spirit, apart from God leading you into a fast like this, like 40 days, Listen, at best, at best, it's foolish, right? At best, it's foolish. It will more than likely be dangerous, and it actually can be fatal, right? It is difficult. I'm told that somewhere between 45 to 60 days is like the absolute max that you can go without food. Many people would drop dead long before 45 days without food. So anyway, that's enough of that. So anybody going home to start their 40 day? Jesus was led into this trial. Speaking of the Holy Spirit leading Jesus, I want to take a moment to acknowledge something really significant in these opening verses. Let's talk about the fact that it was the Holy Spirit who led Jesus in the wilderness in order to be tempted by Satan for a period of 40 days. The Holy Spirit led him. Luke says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. In Mark's gospel, Mark says that the Holy Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. And in Matthew's gospel, we're told that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, ready, 
to be tempted by the devil. The Holy Spirit led him there for this purpose. Does that surprise you? Does it surprise you? Okay, I, let me, it surprises me, all right? As your, as your pastor, I, it surprises me. And, and here's why. I think it's because of this. Even though as Christians, even though as Christians, we know that as followers of Jesus, our lives won't be free of, of, of trials and temptations and troubles. We, we know that up here, don't we? But we don't always know it down here, do we? I think that, I think that we secretly still have this hope that if, if I'm just following Jesus, if I'm walking with the Lord, then my life is going to be free from troubles. We, we feel that in our hearts, don't we? And, and the reason I know that I feel that in my, heart, in my heart is because when trouble comes, my immediate reaction is like, that's not right. It's not fair. Why is this happening to me? Because I'm trying to live my life for you, God. Why would you allow this into my life? Even more, why would you lead me into this trial in my life? We're not going to turn there real quick, but James answers that question really well in the first chapter of James. God is using the trials of our life, testing of our faith in order to produce Christian maturity. That's what God does. And God loves you enough not to leave you where you are. He knows that trials have a way of growing us in our faith, and so he leads us into these things. But I, I think there's at least two good reasons here in, in this passage why God leads his son into this, this trial that he's about to face. In John chapter 8, in John chapter 8, Jesus said, I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I believe that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness because he knew that Jesus would prevail. I believe that, that God is literally showing off his son here. He is going to accomplish what none of us have accomplished in our lives, and that is to perfectly resist the devil and to overcome temptation. I believe that God is putting his son on display here. He doesn't send him, I was like, oh boy, I hope he, I hope he doesn't fail. It's not like the Holy Spirit is like, oh man, I hope Jesus doesn't blow it out here in the wilderness. No, God knew that his son would be obedient because Jesus is the one who always does the Father's will. So that's the first reason, I believe. The second reason why I believe that God led Jesus into the wilderness was to provide us with an example. <laughs> Jesus shows us how to resist the devil and experience victory over sin and temptation. He shows us the way. And we're going to look at just three that I kind of drew out of this text, three things that I see uh, keys on how Jesus resisted Satan and overcame temptation. And the first one is what we've already talked about. Jesus was walking in step with the Spirit. Verse 1 says that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. He was walking in step with the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, he says to us, he says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. 
And then in verse 25, Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Jesus was led by the Spirit. And we, we, we have to be willing to say no to ourselves and follow the Spirit's leading in our lives. Are you willing to follow the Spirit's lead? Are you willing to follow him no matter where he leads you, even if he's leading you into, ooh, the wilderness? Jesus knew where he was going, and he followed the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. Now, when it comes to temptation, when it comes to temptation, you need to know that Satan has been running the same playbook. He's been running the same playbook ever since Adam and Eve first fell in the Garden of Eden. Satan's goal has always been to get people to reject God's plan for their life and choose a different path. That's what he, that's been his playbook since Adam and Eve. He comes to them. He's like, did God really say this? I think what he meant was this, right? He wants Adam and Eve to reject God's plan and to go a different way. In fact, I think that's a pretty good definition for temptation. Temptation is an invitation to reject God's ways and do things a different way. Temptation says, yeah, don't worry about what God wants you to do. Do it your way. Do it your way. Do it, do it a different way. So let's take a look at the three temptations that Satan brings to Jesus. By the way, just throw this out there. I'm not going to elaborate on this deeper because I, I, I don't know. Here, here's what I'll say. A lot of commentators believe that, that the, the strategy of Satan is, is what 1 John chapter 2 writes about. We studied this in, in our 1 John studies. The lust of the, the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are the three primary ways that, that Satan brings temptation into our lives. In fact, every area of sin that you fall into usually falls into one of those three categories, right? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And if you look at the, the story in Genesis where Adam and Eve fell, you can see the lust of the flesh... The food looked good to eat. It looked good, the lust of the eyes, and, and it, was, it was good to make one wise, the pride of life. You know? so, so we see those being played out in the Garden of Eden, but we also see them maybe played out here in the temptations of Jesus, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Well, verse three, the devil said to Jesus, said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, after 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, 40 days with no food, at the end of verse 2, Luke just says he was hungry. Like, is that, is that not the biggest understatement? <laughs> right? Yeah, he was, he was hungry. Want a little snack before he goes to bed, you know? No, at, at this point, Jesus is reaching the point of what? Starvation. Right? He's nearing the point where physically, without food, he's going to die. And Satan comes along, and he hits Jesus right where he is most vulnerable, right? Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but there are times in our lives when we tend to be a little more vulnerable to temptation. There are times in our lives when, when, when we're more susceptible to temptation. I came across an acronym that, that highlights this several years ago. And uh, some of these moments, the, the acronym is HALT, HALT. The idea is that, that whenever you are 
hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, you should halt. You should slow your roll. You should proceed with caution because in these moments, we tend to be more susceptible to temptation. Now, obviously, obviously there are other times where we're susceptible as well. Things like sickness. When you're sick, you tend to be more susceptible. Or how about when you're grieving, right? How about when you're facing financial difficulties? Are you more susceptible to temptation? Yes, but that would totally ruin the acronym, right? (laughs) So we're just going to leave those off, right? Halt. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. The point is that we need to be aware of the times in our lives when we are most vulnerable. We need to be aware of that so we can be on guard. Well, Satan sees Jesus in this vulnerable state where he's nearing starvation. And he says, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, the word if here could actually be translated since, since. Satan's not questioning whether Jesus is God's son. That's not, that's not the, the, the thrust of this passage. In fact, many translations actually change out the if and they use the word since. What he's saying is this, since you are God's son, turn this rock into bread. He says, Jesus, you can fix this. You can fix this. Why are you going through this, Jesus? It seems like a logical solution, right? I mean, Jesus is hungry. Just make some bread. Just make some bread. What's really going on here? What is is Satan really doing here? Satan is calling into question the goodness of God the Father. I mean, after all, who led Jesus into the wilderness? (laughs) The Holy Spirit. God has led his son out into this wilderness to be tempted by Satan to fast. Satan encourages Jesus to question the goodness of God. He says, Jesus, stop waiting for God to provide for you. Stop depending on him and just do it yourself. You don't need God to provide for you, Jesus. You're the son of God. Just snap your fingers and turn that rock into some bread. Satan is inviting Jesus to reject God's way and to choose a different way. God said, I'm leading you into a fast. Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into this fast. Who's going to lead him out of it? God, the Holy Spirit, right? Satan says, stop waiting on him and just do it yourself. Now, can I tell you something? That wouldn't been, uh, would not have been much of a temptation for me. And it's not because I'm better than Jesus. No, it's actually because I'm not Jesus that it would not be tempting for me. Because if Satan said, hey, Chris, turn that rock into bread, I can't. Like, I don't have the... Jesus did. Jesus had the ability to look at that rock and say... Pecan pie, right? (laughs) It didn't have to be bread. It could have been a steak. It could have been anything, right? I don't have that ability. So it's not much of a temptation for Satan to come along to me and say, hey, Chris, make your own meal, you know? 
but Jesus does. And so Satan says, use your divine power here and fix this problem. You don't have to be hungry anymore. But he does tempt us, doesn't he? And how he does is in the same way, he appeals to very natural desires, very real desires that we have. For example, like Jesus, we experience hunger, right? We desire food, right? But temptation comes along and says, hey, you don't need to, you don't need to eat food you know, in the way that God would want you to eat food. You don't have to take care of the body that God has given you, the temple of the Holy Spirit. You can eat as much as you want, whatever you want, as often as you want. Just eat, 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 eat. And where does temptation lead you? It leads you down to a path of gluttony. He leads you into sin. What is based on a real desire. I'm just hungry. And he takes that. He says, reject God's way and go a different way. What about sexual desires? Those are natural desires that God has given us. But what does temptation do? Temptation says, oh, you don't need to really worry about God's plan for sexuality. You know, the, the idea of fulfilling those desires within, within the confines of one man and one woman for life. He says, you know, you can fill those desires in a different way. And he leads us down a path towards what? Pornography, fornication, adultery, right? Reject God's way, go in a different way. That's what temptation says. But notice how Jesus responds. Verse four, Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, as we make our way through this passage, we're gonna see that in all three of these temptations, Jesus is gonna respond by quoting the word of God. And the second key that, that Jesus shows us for how to resist Satan in overcoming temptation is, is knowing God's word and submitting to God's word. Don't miss that second part. It's not enough to simply know what the Bible says. Even Satan knows what the scriptures say, right? We're gonna see that later in the passage. In fact, like, listen, as much Bible as you think you know, Satan would whoop you at Bible trivia. I believe that. He would totally whoop you, right? He knows what the Bible says, and he knows how to twist it, and he knows how to manipulate it to his own, for his own purposes. We have to decide. We have to decide to live our lives according to God's word. We don't, we don't just learn what it says. We live by what it says. Jesus didn't just quote it. He lived by it. And the passage that, that Jesus quotes here, this is, this is amazing. It's, it, it's like, it's, it's, a, it's brilliant. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now, just a little context for you. The book of Deuteronomy contains the words of Moses to the people of Israel as they are just about to enter the promised land. They have been wandering in the wilderness, forget this, wandering in the where? the wilderness, for 40 years. You seeing any connections here? Okay. They've been wandering the wilderness for 40 years, and they are just about to enter into the promised land. And Moses writes this book, Deuteronomy, where he preaches these messages that are written down to remind the people of their history and to stress the importance of remembering all that God had done. 
Now, let me just read just the, 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 the verses, the, just a couple verses uh, from which Jesus quotes here. This is Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Are you, are you, is your mind, but like for me, I read this, I'm like, this is so, like this is exactly what Jesus is going through for 40 days in the wilderness. Verse three, and he humbled you and let you hunger and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. I mean, can you just say like, okay, Satan, you're pretty good at Bible trivia, but Jesus is, he's really good, right? <laughs> Jesus is really good. This is, this is like, this is the perfect answer to what Satan brings at him. It's perfect. And Jesus uses, by the way, there's a, there's a, uh, a teaching strategy that, that rabbis would use. And Jesus was a rabbi. And that teaching strategy is called remez, R-E-M-E-Z. You can look it up later, R-E-M-E-Z. And basically what the teaching strategy is this. You quote just a portion of, of, of a passage with the understanding that your students, your pupils, We'll hear it and say, oh, he's, he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let's go check and see what he's saying here. And you read it in the context like, ah, oh, it's more than just man will not live by bread alone. He's talking about the wilderness wanderings and all these things. That's what Jesus is doing here. That's one of the strategies. And if you look at the, the, the teachings of Jesus throughout the New Testament, you'll see Jesus using this strategy over and over. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? That's a quote from the Psalms. And Jesus is taking the listener in that moment to that psalm because that psalm describes something that hadn't even been invented yet, and that is crucifixion. Fascinating stuff. So that's Ramez, R-E-M-E-Z. So, so Jesus says that you know, God was testing Israel in the wilderness for 40 years to see what was in their hearts, to see if they would keep his commandments. The Holy Spirit has led Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days where he was tempted by Satan and demonstrated his commitment to God the Father. What's in Jesus' heart? Obedience, submission to the will of the Father. And just as God miraculously provided for his people in the wilderness by giving them manna from heaven, like something they've never even seen or heard of, God is able to miraculously provide for his son, even if it's without food. And that's what Jesus is saying. He said, my, my, trusting and obeying God is more important than this need that I have right now. Because I know that God, I mean, look what he did for the Israelites. He brought manna. God can take care of me. I don't need to take things into my own hands. God led me here and he will provide for me and he will lead me out of this. But God's will be done. Well, that leads us now to the second temptation. Verse five, we read, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then 
will worship me, it'll all be yours. Now, in this second temptation, Satan presents Jesus with, with, a, with a snapshot of all the nations of the world. And he says, Jesus, isn't this what you came for? Isn't this why you're here? You want to be the savior of the world. Let's make a deal. Let's make a deal. I'll give them to you. You can have them all. You can have all the nations of the world, Jesus, if, if you'll just worship me. I mean, this is Satan's dream come true, right? To get the Son of God to bow down and worship him. This is what Satan has always wanted, right? To be like the Most High. Now, the idea that, that Satan has this authority to give this to Jesus, the dominion over the kingdoms and the, the world, the nations of the world, this goes all the way back again to Adam and Eve in the garden. God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the earth. But when they fell, when they fell and they rejected God, that dominion was temporarily given to Satan. How do I know that? Well, Jesus, three times in the Gospel of John, three times in the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to him as the, the prince of this world. Paul calls him the ruler of the kingdom of the air in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul also calls him the lowercase g, God of this age, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So Satan comes to him, he makes a legitimate offer. He says, hey, you, you, you bow down to me, you can have it. Once again, the temptation here is to reject God's way and to choose a different path. God's plan is to save the world. Jesus came to save the world. Jesus came to be a savior for all the kingdoms of the world. But the plan and the way that God has prescribed for this is suffering and death for Jesus on a cross for our sins. That's the way that God is going to accomplish this. And we know, we know from scriptures that that, that, that is not something that Jesus really wanted to, to do, right? We know that because in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the, on the night before Jesus would die on the cross, he prayed, Father, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus wasn't like, oh man, I just can't wait to go be beaten and thrown on a cross and die. That wasn't it at all. He was like, is there any other way, God? Is there any other way that we can do this? Because if there is, that's, that's what I vote for. And Satan comes along and says, there is a way. There's a way to get what you want without the suffering. Forget the whole cross. Forget all that pain, Jesus. Just bow down to me and I'll give it to you. Well, verse eight, Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Once again, Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. This time it's from chapter six, verse 13. Jesus says, no deal, no deal. The only one who is to be worshiped is God. He alone is to be served. 
And for Jesus, and for Jesus, serving the Father meant embracing whatever the Father's will was for his life. Which is why in that prayer in the garden, after he said, if there's any other way, he then said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was obedient to the Father, even to the point of being willing to lay down his life. And that is the third key that Jesus shows us for how to resist Satan and overcome temptation. Jesus, Jesus lived in total submission to God's will. And that begs a question. It begs a question. What is most important to me? What's most important to me? Is it being safe and avoiding suffering at all costs? Is that the most important thing? Or is it following the Lord's plans for my life no matter what it costs? I love what Jim Elliott said. Jim Elliott in his journal, he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What a powerful thing to, to realize. Talk about setting you free, right? When you realize the most important thing is just walking in obedience to God and his will for your life. It's not about living the most safe and, and secure life possible here on earth. It's about living in obedience to him. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, that leads us now to the third temptation. Verse nine, we see that he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and... On their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, in this third temptation, notice, notice what Satan's doing. Satan is now quoting scriptures as well. He doesn't realize he's no match, right, for Jesus. But he brings Jesus, he brings Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, most commentators believe that this is the southeast corner of the Temple Mount, which is overlooking uh, the Kidron Valley. Now, in the time of Jesus, the peak of this corner was estimated to be about 450 feet above the bottom of the valley. That's, that's a long ways down, right? Jewish historian Josephus said, if any looked down, his eyes would grow dizzy, not being able to reach to so vast a depth. It's a long ways down. Now, I should point out that other commentators believe that it wasn't the southeast corner of the Temple Mount. They believe that Satan brought Jesus to the top of the temple itself. And I don't think that we can really be you know, dogmatic or concrete e either way, whether it was on the, the southeast corner or on top of the, the actual temple. All we can say for sure is that it was in this area. It was in the area of the temple. So why? Why the temple area? Why is Satan bringing Jesus here? Well, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, we read that the, uh, these words, the Lord you seek will suddenly come 
to his temple. That's in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And so the expectation among the rabbis and among the Jewish people was that when the Messiah comes, he's going to announce his arrival at the temple. So Satan brings Jesus to the temple and he says, hey, Jesus, let's announce your arrival. Let's announce your arrival. And he quotes from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, okay? He says, let's, let's, this is a great plan. Let's announce your arrival this way. You jump. And you and I both know that God the Father is not going to let you hit the ground. Can you imagine what the people are going to think when they see you miraculously hovering above the ground and coming to rest? Or can you imagine what the people are going to think when they see the angels of God swooping in and lowering you to the ground? It is going to be quite a show everybody's going to know that you are the Messiah. You've come to the temple. You're announcing your arrival. And he quotes from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. Now, this is a psalm which describes God as a refuge and describes his ability to protect those who trust in him. And Satan says, since you're the son of God, prove it. Prove it. Let everybody see. Throw yourself down and everybody will know that you are here. But there's a problem. There's a problem with what Satan's doing here. You see, there's just, there's just one tiny detail that Satan has conveniently left out. He, he reads these verses, verses 11 and 12, and he leaves out four words, four words. In Psalm 91, verse 11, the text actually says, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and here's the part he left out, in all your ways. On their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Here's the problem. The way that Satan is suggesting is not the way of the Messiah. This is not the way that God has prescribed for the, for the announcing of his son. This is not God's way. This is not the Messiah's way. God is not the one who's leading Jesus to jump off the temple. And Jesus always walks in obedience to the Father. And God, yes, is more than capable of rescuing his son Jesus at any point. But this is not the way. This is not the way. So Jesus rejects Satan's offer. He says, I'm not going to do this. This is not God that's calling me to do this, and this is not the way it's going to go down. In verse 12, we read, Jesus answered him and said, it is said, you will not put the Lord your God to the test. And once again, where's he quoting from? Deuteronomy. Again, from chapter 6, this time it's verse 16, and Moses is warning the people. He's warning them, He's saying, do not test God the way that they had in the past. Don't do that. Don't do what your forefathers did. Don't do it. Instead, as Moses says in verse 17, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. Don't put God to the test. Obey him. That's what you need to do. Jesus says, I'm not going to test my father. I'm not going to do it. I will walk obediently in the way that God, the father, has prepared for me. 
And with that, and with that, we read in verse 13, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. By walking in step with the Spirit, by living in obedience to God's word and in submission to God's will for his life, Jesus resisted the devil and he overcame every temptation to sin. And with his help, with his help, we can too. Do you believe that? In the book of James, we're told in chapter four to submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. First Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. By walking with Jesus in step with the Spirit and walking in obedience to God's word and in submission to God's will for our lives, we too can resist the devil and overcome the temptations to sin. In verse 13, we're told that Satan, having failed, I like that, he failed. He, failed. he tried. And by the way, having, having, it says every temptation, Right? I think one thing that we need to realize is it wasn't just like, oh, he tempted him three times. Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. This is the summary of what those temptations looked like here, okay? And having, you know, fallen short with every temptation, Satan departed from Jesus until an opportune time. The next time that we read about Satan's direct involvement, the next time, Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 is the night when Jesus was betrayed and Satan entered into the heart of Judas. The night before he would die on a cross for our sins. One last thing. One last thing. Because Matthew includes a detail that, that Luke doesn't, and I want you to hear it. In Matthew's gospel, we're told that after Satan had left him, after he left him, behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I really want you to see that because I want you to understand that this was a really, really, really difficult 40 days for Jesus. Jesus walked in the way that the Father gave him to walk, and he did send his angels, didn't he? He didn't do it because Jesus tested him by jumping off the temple. He did it because Jesus was obedient to him and resisted Satan and resisted temptation. And when he had resisted him, God the Father sent those angels to minister to his son. This was not an easy test. Jesus, Jesus handled this trial in the wilderness with all the tools that are available to us. He did it as a human being. And God sent angels to minister to him. And listen, I don't get how all of this works. Okay, I'm no angel expert, all right? I'm not. But in Hebrews chapter one, verse 14, speaking about angels, the writer says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve 
for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. God sends angels. And I don't know how many times in my life, I don't know. He's never made it clear to me. I've never seen an angel. I, I, I don't think. I don't. Maybe I have. I don't know. But I believe that as I walk in obedience to God and I, and I resist the devil and, and, I, and I walk in obedience to God's will for my life, I believe that God comes and he encourages me and ministers to my soul as well through spirits that I'm not even seeing. I believe that. I believe that's what the text teaches. Pretty amazing stuff. Well, next week, we are going to move into now the third major section of Luke's gospel. Next week, we are going to begin to look at the ministry of Jesus in the area of Galilee as he heads back north and starts his public ministry. But that's next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Thank you so much for the demonstration that he gives us here in your word on how to resist the devil and how to overcome temptation and, and sin in our lives. And God, we know that as we walk with him, as we fix our eyes on Jesus and we are led by your spirit, we, we are submitted to your word and to your will, God, you will give us the ability to resist Satan as well. And that we can overcome the temptations in our lives as well. Thank you, Jesus, for what you accomplished. And thank you for walking with us that we might too be victorious. Pray these things in your name. Amen.